Tonight we'll be beginning in Exodus 32. I'm going to do my best David Papillon uh, imitation tonight. If my voice dies halfway through, Darren will close in prayer and we'll go home. In the Abrahamic covenant, God promised Abraham that from his body would come a chosen nation, the nation set apart to God, and this nation would be the means by which God would reach all the nations with the message of salvation from sin in order to fulfill what we called, as we began the Pentateuch, the, the central directive of Genesis 1, 26-28, that mankind would rule the earth in sinless perfection as God's representatives. That's where creation started, that's where it's headed, and Israel will be the means by which we get there. God formed his chosen nation first in Egypt as Jacob's family grew into the multitudes of millions. He rescued them from slavery, taking them out of Egypt, and has now officially formed the nation of Israel. We're now a few months after the Red Sea escape. God has made covenant with Israel, the Ten Commandments. He's given specific stipulations in this covenant, and that is what we saw was the book of the covenant in chapters 21 through 23 of Exodus God has confirmed this covenant by meeting with Moses and with Aaron, Aaron's sons and 70 elders of Israel. And twice, twice Israel has agreed to the covenant. Exodus 24, 3, all the word that the Lord has spoken, the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Verse 7 of the same chapter, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. Now Moses has gone up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. And we saw last time that God is giving Moses specific instructions concerning the tabernacle, concerning the nature of acceptable worship. The Ten Commandments had been told to Moses and relayed to the people. And now God would give Moses, in essence, the written contract, the the written covenant with, as it were, one copy for each party, thus the two tablets. And we pick up in Exodus 31, 18, the last verse of chapter of chapter 31. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, if we were to look at Exodus 32 through 34 through the lens of our understanding of the New Testament and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would see some clear gospel principles which are foundational to us because really in many ways, these three chapters represent for us our desperate need for salvation because Israel is immediately now going to literally take their own existence into their own hands. And we come to, other than the Red Sea, the most famous incident in the book of Exodus, and that is the incident of the golden calf. While Moses is still on the mountain, they're going to immediately violate the first two commandments as a people of having no gods before Yahweh and of making an image, not making an image to, to worship. And so because of our understanding and having the, the joy of having the New Testament with which to understand the whole of Scripture, I want to present this section of Exodus in terms of gospel principles. And these aren't new to you, and we're not going to violate the, the original Uh, meaning in the original text, the original uh, purpose of Exodus, but we do have the whole of Scripture with which to to look at this. These aren't new principles, but we we need to review the the gospel continually. We, We don't ever say we're done with the gospel. These are principles that prove to us that God has always been consistent in His presentation in Scripture 
as to the requirements of salvation from sin. The nature of sin has not changed. The nature of salvation has not changed. And so we see here these gospel principles from a New Testament perspective. The first principle that we'll look at is your sin is worthy of death. Your sin is worthy of death. And I I know that's basic for us, but I think as, as one of the things that we have as sinners is part of our sin nature is to minimize our sin. That we excuse it. In the same way that we can't really grasp in full the magnificence of the holiness of God, I don't think we grasp in full the the heinous nature of sin and how terrible it truly is. It is part of our sin nature to excuse sin, to underestimate sin. This is why pseudo-Christian cults such as Roman Catholicism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons present sin as something that we can deal with by our own good works and our achievements before God. But that makes a fatal assumption. The assumption is is that doing something good has the power to erase something bad. And the Bible never says that. What is sin? Well, sin is the taking of God's good creation, the taking of our own status as being made in the image of God and rebelliously turning against our very Creator to do all that He has commanded that we not do and to not do all that He's commanded that we do. And you might ask, and this is a reasonable question, why is the wages of sin death? Why not penance or doing something nice on on the cosmic scoreboard to try to even everything out? Well, that's like saying, I have cancer, but instead of trying to destroy the cancer, how about I eat a turnip because they're good for you? We wouldn't do that. Sin is a cancer. It pollutes you. It pollutes those around you. And ultimately, it pollutes God's creation. And so sin must be destroyed. Therefore, the carrier of sin must be destroyed. And that's you and that's me. And so all that carries it has to go. Let's see how Israel shows us that your sin is worthy of death. Exodus 32, we'll look at the first six verses for a moment. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we, don't know, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So the Lord told Moses that he needed to go down the mountain immediately. And look how God distances himself from sin and from sinful people. Verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. That's like he's saying, that's not on me. This is not on me. These people have been steeped in the ancient Near East idea that your God must be visible in order to have faith in that God, to have reassurance of divine protection. They just left Egypt where there's images of gods everywhere. They've been used to this their whole lives. 
Without an image, the people seem to be in dread that they have no supernatural protection. And so they, they go immediately to wanting something they can see. And already they speak of Moses in degrading terms. And in verse 1, this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, how quickly they forgot that Moses was the one that saved their lives. And so Aaron had a golden calf made, literally in Hebrew, a young bull. And this is important because in the Bible, Yahweh, the true and living God, is sometimes metaphorically associated with various animals. He's associated with an eagle. He's associated with a lion. But never in all the Bible is God associated with a bull except in unlawful idolatrous shrines. The bull image is completely and utterly pagan. There's nothing resembling God whatsoever. And not only does Aaron complete the idol, he sets up a full-on feast with burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, it's clear that there is a measure of ignorance on Aaron's part. He has obviously failed Moses. He's failed Israel. He's failed the Lord. But he said the feast will be a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. So for him, making the golden bowl didn't imply turning away from the true God. But the ignorance was no excuse and the consequences for his giving in to the people's demands is going to be disastrous. So the the next day's festivities quickly turned not into a day of reverence, not into a day of awe, as God commanded in the right worship of himself, but a day of drinking and playing. We're not told what the playing is, but if you let your imagination run wild, that's probably where you where they would go. The force with which Moses will have to restore order tells us that it was on the level of anarchy. It was on the level of, of society completely gone crazy, lawless, totally without boundaries or control. Just how bad is the sin of idolatry of this immediate covenant treachery? Well, God has an alternative threat which will still fulfill his promises to Abraham and deal with this sin on the level that it deserves. Chapter 32, verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. How we tend to the sin of idolatry. We go so quickly towards it. We find immediate comfort in that which we can see, that which we can feel, that which we can, we can understand and grasp. We tend quickly to then associate that thing with God. This is why icons and images are so pervasive in perverted forms of Christianity such as Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholicism, they give false comfort. They give false comfort with a little statue or a picture when what's needed is faith in the invisible God, which is harder. But that's what is true worship. And we're not capable of holding back with a little bit of idolatry. We're not able to do that. Once the door is open, we go crazy with it, just like Israel did. Any idol allowed into our lives, visible or invisible, it becomes a consuming fire. It's not something that you can say, I'll keep a little one in the corner. They grow, they multiply. And besides that, we don't need images. God has made himself known in visible fashion already. Colossians 1.15 reminds us that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. We have the image of God. It's, it's in Christ. And we should also note that Israel, as in much of their long history of idolatry, as you read through the Old Testament, 
they decided that they could make what they thought were legitimate representations of the true and living God. Rarely did they think of themselves as apostates. They were creating a new version of Yahweh worship that they thought they were free to do. This is the same thing that happens to churches today when they slowly drift away from the simple truths of the gospel. They, They don't advertise this as turning away from the faith. You're never going to go to a church website and, and see an advertisement for the pastor's new sermon, why we are completely rejecting the faith of our fathers. They're never going to see that. It's just a slow, gradual progression until the faith that is now presented doesn't resemble the biblical faith at all. Now what you have is a, is a visible and a more exciting and immediately fulfilling version of the Christian faith, which, as the Apostle Paul said in Galatians, is no gospel at all. What was the main reason that these people failed? They failed because of leadership. Aaron utterly failed to stand for the fidelity of true worship to Yahweh. He didn't take a stand. We see this in churches. Listen, there's a very simple axiom here. A church with immature and disobedient membership, yet with one or two faithful shepherds, can be turned around. A church with one or two unfaithful shepherds, is in deep trouble and will likely fail. That's the way the church is built. And leadership led an entire people here down the road that they should never have gone down. And so God has offered Moses, let me destroy this people and I'll start over with you. Their sin was worthy of death. Your sin was worthy of death. So rather than hanging around on that one, I think we better get to the second principle before we despair here's the second principle you need a mediator you need a mediator he must be a mediator who completely represents the interests of both parties and this won't be easy because one party god is completely in the right and the other party israel is completely in the wrong one party holds all the cards god the other party holds none of the cards israel one party has everything to offer god the other party has nothing to offer Israel. And so Moses takes up the mantle of mediator, of representing God to the people and representing the people to God. Now, Israel doesn't know it, but their very existence is hanging in the balance at this moment. Now, our Bible would be very different if Moses had said in chapter 32, verse 11, Really? A great nation from me? What might we call this nation? I I like it. Uh, the rest of the Bible would be a whole lot different. Uh, chapter 32, verse 12 w- would read, And God destroyed Israel, and Moses started over. But he didn't. The key phrase in verse 11 is, But Moses, with a gulp and nerves of steel, he stands before God to represent people who have no right to representation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Moses bravely turns it around and he asks God why his wrath is burning against your people. God said to Moses, look what your people are doing. And Moses said, why are you going to destroy your people? And he turns it around. 
But Moses immediately appeals to God on the basis of God's honor and God's glory. He doesn't minimize Israel's sin. He doesn't make any excuses. His appeal to God will be God-centered. He's not going to say, oh, come on, they're sweet people. They're just scared. They're, they're having a bad day. They're, they're basically pretty good. He's not going to say that. In verse 12, he appeals to, to God and his glory. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out? to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Now, within the sovereign decree of God, God allows for multiple options while fully knowing what he has decreed. In this case, God responds to the intercession of Moses. In verse 14, God relents from the disaster he's about to bring on Israel. But remember, a mediator must represent both sides accurately. Moses had represented Israel not on Israel's merits, since they had none, but on God's merits. Why should you destroy them? Because it'll hurt your glory. It'll harm your reputation. And now Moses will represent God while trying to save his people. In verses 15 through 20, he comes down the mountain with the two tablets from God. And and we get an interesting detail that the tablets were engraved on both sides. This is interesting because that was never done in the ancient Near East. Almost never. For the simple reason that engraving on the other side of a tablet would generally break the tablet. But God engraved on both sides to accommodate all ten commandments on both sides. In fact, some scholars feel it's possible that the entire book of the covenant, Exodus 21 through 23, was inscribed as well. It's entirely possible, although that ruins our mental picture in all of our kids' coloring pages, and I understand that. We learn now that Moses' assistant, Joshua, is with him, and he tells Moses that it sounds like there's a war going on down there as they're coming down the mountain. And then they hear that it's singing but not singing unto Yahweh. This is pagan, self-made worship songs to a false god of their own making. And these are, these are songs of revelry and songs of, of, of selfishness. The people of broken covenant. And so Moses, as it were, tears up the contract representing the righteous anger of God. He breaks the tablets and he shatters them. Now, biblical narrative doesn't always obligate itself to present events in purely chronological fashion. Sometimes the more important events are presented first for theological emphasis, very much like when we tell a story, sometimes we jump to the end and then fill in details. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. And as soon of chapter 32, and as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Now it seems reasonable that between verses 19 and 20, between the breaking of the tablets and the the grinding down of the the calf and making the people drink the water, or perhaps even before the breaking of the tablets, one of those two, it seems reasonable that between one of those events, it's at that point that verses 25 through 29 happens. 
Because remember, the, the camp is in complete disarray. They're partying, they're shouting, they're singing. The total anarchy of false religious ecstasy is broken out. And so Moses had to exert strong leadership. He had to restore order. And in verses 25 through 29, he stood at the entrance to the camp and he, he hollered out, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered to Moses. And remember that Moses was of the tribe of, of Levi, at Levi, and at a human level, there may have been some loyalty to him, but at the heart level, they were loyal to Yahweh, and they were not part of this revelry. And so Moses told them to take swords and restore order by killing the worst of the revelers. He, he warned them to show no partiality, no matter who was rebelling. He said, each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And it took 3,000 deaths to stop the party. By the way, no surrounding nation was going to fear a people who were uncontrolled and undisciplined and leaderless. So Moses had to restore order for the sake of those who would live and he had to carry on the mission of Israel to conquer the Canaanites as per the decree of God. Now Moses had the people's attention. 3,000 deaths will get their attention. He took the idolatrous golden bull, melted it down, ground it to powder, put it in the people's drinking water and made the people drink it. Now, there's a lot of mystery around this last action. There's a reasonable possibility from a a pretty reasonable Hebrew translation that he also took the tablets of stone and ground them down and made the people drink them as well. In Hebrew, there's no direct object after the verb ground in verse 20. So it could be the tablets and the, the golden calf. In any case, Moses is doing something that's corrective. And it's at least at the symbolic level is corrective, which I'll explain in just a moment. And no one knows for certain what's meant by grinding the golden calf to dust, as that would be actually really difficult to do. Some believe the calf was made with a wooden frame and overlaid with gold, and the ashes of the burned wooden frame is what was consumed. Moses threw the dust of what was broken down into a stream that ran through the camp. Deuteronomy 9:21. He's reminding the next generation, then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. So why would Moses do this? I think the best answer here is that at, the, at, at least the symbolic level, he was doing to the idol what Israel was supposed to do to idols. He was grinding it, melting it, destroying it, smashing it, burning it. But we, we should also note that the Old Testament has another similar parallel. And it's one that's worth mentioning. You don't have to turn here, but in Numbers chapter 5, God gives a statute that if a husband suspects his wife as being unfaithful, but he has no proof or witnesses, he was to take her to the priest and the woman was to drink a mixture of holy water and dust from the floor of the tabernacle called the water of bitterness. And she was to take an oath that if she's innocent, nothing would happen to her. But if she was guilty, then may the water of bitterness make her horribly ill and make her unable to ever have children. Now what's strikingly similar here is that both the Numbers 5 situation and the Exodus 32 situation deal with an exclusive love relationship that should have been characterized by loyalty. Instead, the unfaithful is made to drink the bitterness, the consequences of this sin. In the Numbers 5 situation, 
by God's power, a guilty woman drinking the water of bitterness would show physical manifestations that she was in fact guilty. There are some scholars who believe, and it can't be proven, but it's interesting, that perhaps the incident of the Levites bearing the sword did in fact happen after the drinking of the bitter water and that God made the water give some physical manifestation which indicated a continued rebellious heart and a lack of repentance which told the Levites which ones to kill, whom to strike. That would fit with Numbers 5. In either case though, Moses is doing what the people should have done. He's destroying the idol and the people are drinking the consequences of their sin. Now, you knew this moment was coming when Moses would confront his brother Aaron. Chapter 32, verse 21, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Basically saying, is there some explanation? Is there something I missed? Is there some legitimate reason for this? And immediately Aaron begins to minimize his own sin and to do what biblical counselors call blame-shifting Verse 22, and Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they're set on on evil. In counseling situations, it goes like this. She did it. That's what they say. Verse 23, for they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Notice he points out, hey, they were mad at you, bud. This is about you. And then in perhaps the most blatant example of minimizing sin in all the Bible, verse 24, so I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Does anybody on planet earth believe this? No, amazing minimizing. And for reasons beyond our knowledge, Aaron is not singled out for punishment. He is included in the grace of God because of the mediation of Moses. But the next day was a new beginning. And once again, Moses placed himself in the role of mediator. Verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And Moses returns to the Lord and now he does something that is stunning he refuses to be separated from his people he will identify with his people at all costs and he asks God to forgive the people in verse 32 but now if you will forgive their sins but if not please blot me out of your book that you have written Moses refers to a heavenly book whether or not there's an actual physical book is irrelevant which contains the names of those who are faithful to God. The New Testament has a name for that book. It is the book of life. And Moses said, if the people are going to perish in your wrath, then I will perish with them. This is the same intense love and duty the Apostle Paul expressed toward physical Israel, the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel as his people in his yearning that they turned to Christ, he said in Romans 9, verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, that I would, if it were possible, lose my salvation to see Israel saved. And so here Moses identifies himself with the people. The fate of the people will be his fate. If God forgives them, then he will be forgiven. If they are going to die, he will die as well. But while God is dealing with Israel as a nation in the scope of eternity, he deals with individual faith. 
and he knows who the truly faithful are and who is not truly faithful in their heart. Verse 33, that the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. And just to make certain the people knew how serious God was about their sin, to show them how close to complete destruction they had come, to bring them to their senses, to bring them to their knees. Verse 35, then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. But God isn't done. He has spared them, but they're not out of hot water yet. Moses' work of intercession must continue. Now, chapter 33 seems like good news. God tells Moses to take the people to the land that he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He, he says, I'll send an angel before them to drive out all the wicked peoples of the land. And they'll enter the land that's flowing with milk and honey, meaning the land of prosperity and, and richness. But then the other shoe drops. Chapter 33, verse 3. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Because what have we not seen yet? We have not seen from Israel repentance. We haven't seen their brokenness, but we see it now. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. God is eliciting from the people a response of humiliation and disgrace and dishonor and shame. And that's the only way we may approach God for forgiveness, isn't it? It is in repentance in the total humiliation concerning our own sin with a sense of shock, a sense of alarm, at how bad your sin actually is. And just when you think it's kind of hopeless, we we get to this parenthesis, this side note about the relationship that Moses has with God and it gives us insight into what a mediator looks like and and it just feels like a breath of fresh air. It feels like we've been swimming underwater and we come up to take a deep breath. Remember, Moses has received instructions for the construction of the tabernacle, the ornate traveling worship center in Israel, but they hadn't actually built it yet. And so in the meantime, they had an interim meeting place, just a little tent. And listen to the tone of sweetness and solace and peace and communion, so different than what's happening with Israel. Chapter 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Let me just give you three observations briefly about this. First of all, unlike the coming tabernacle, which will be in the middle of the camp when it's built, the temporary tent of meeting is set up outside the camp. 
God is aloof from this people. And the best reason for that is that they haven't yet sacrificed for sin. There hasn't been a provision made for relationship. Second observation, look at the qualification of Moses as mediator. We have this face-to-face, unhindered relationship. A mediator must be in right standing with God or he can't represent both parties. So he had to be in right standing. And third observation, when Moses went to the tent, all the people would rise up and from a distance, they couldn't go with him. They just had to watch. They would stand and watch Moses enter into fellowship with God. They're still far. They're still distant. They're still away. The work of mediation is still incomplete because sin is still separating people from God. Now, very obviously to us, Moses is a foreshadowing of a mediator in right standing before God who identifies himself fully with God and fully with humanity and stands in the gap. He is, of course, a forerunner forerunner and model of Jesus Christ. There are some differences. Moses offered his life to God. Jesus gave his life to God. Moses was willing to endure God's wrath for Israel's sake. Jesus did endure God's wrath for our sake. Moses interceded even when the people were ignorant that they needed intercession. Christ took it to a whole different level. Romans 5 says that he died for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for you before you even existed. That's a phenomenal thought. In fact, if we remember that Moses himself is the human author of the Pentateuch, we're reminded of what Jesus said in John five forty six. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. If the leaders of Israel in Jesus' day had just done a simple comparison, hey, you know, we know Moses really well, and looking at Jesus, they would have seen the obvious clear parallels. Moses himself said in Deuteronomy 18 that God would raise up a prophet like him. And in fact, the the argument the writer of Hebrews makes in Hebrews chapter 3 to Jews who are on the fence about Christ is that Jesus Christ in every way is better than Moses. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And so the basic lesson is if you thought Moses was a good mediator, Jesus Christ is the perfect mediator. Israel needed a mediator. You need a mediator. Three gospel principles. Your sin is worthy of death. You need a mediator. One more. You need a merciful God. You need a merciful God. Having a mediator is one thing, but what's God going to do? He is holy, holy, holy. He brings everything to the table. Israel brings nothing to the table. How's he going to respond to the pleas of the mediator? God has allowed Israel to live, but he refuses to go with them to the promised land. The covenant relationship has been shattered. It's been broken But in the sovereign plan of God, here comes the mediator again. Chapter 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Have you ever started a prayer? Look, Lord. This is brave. He says, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people and God has mercy. The mediation works. Verse 14, and he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God says, yes, I will go with you. But it's like Moses had cotton in his ears. It's like he didn't even hear 
Verse 15, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. I picture God and the angels kind of looking at each other saying, didn't you just hear what I just said? Verse 16, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And so again, Moses says, please go with us, go with us. Verse 17, God says, yes, again. And still as if he didn't hear God say yes two times before, Moses still asks for assurance. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And so God answers and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Moses says, please show me your glory. There's a desperation in his request. It can be translated, oh, show me your glory. The New American Standard says, I pray you, show me your glory. And Moses has asked for a precious gift to see the glory of God. Now, in the Old Testament, the idea of the glory of God refers 45 times to the visible manifestation of God, something you can see Very often it's to give assurance of his intent to dwell among his people. Glory speaks of God's beauty, his magnificence, his radiance, his rapture. A representation of the glory of his invisible nature. So was this what Moses was looking for? Was he asking for a visible manifestation? Let's think about this for a moment. Remember the context. Israel has been on the brink of destruction. Moses is shaken. God has revealed his holiness and his refusal to accept rebellion. And Moses has seen that it would be nothing for God to simply wipe out all of the people off the face of the earth and to fulfill his promises to Abraham through Moses. And I think we could make the argument that Moses has seen more visible manifestations of God than anybody in human history. A burning bush, a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire, thunderbolts, mighty plagues on Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the mountain of God, receiving tablets written by the finger of God himself. So was Moses asking for more of this? I don't think he was. Moses didn't need a bigger light and fireworks show. It was a request for God to comfort Moses with the character of God, with his steadfast faithfulness are you really going to be with us now in ancient near east uh, pattern or habit it wasn't that moses didn't hear god saying yes it's that moses was was pushing god to say yes three times to give him assurance he said yes twice and for the final yes he says show me your glory are you really going to be with us he needed assurance that god would extend grace to israel even though they had completely betrayed him. So God's answer isn't a bigger fireworks and light show. He says, I will show you my goodness. Now, whatever manner in which God would choose to reveal himself to Moses, the emphasis is not on how God would reveal himself visually, but in how God would reveal his character, his goodness, his mercy. And there's precedent for this elsewhere in the Old Testament with the patriarch Job. In Job 38 through 42, God strongly rebuked Job for questioning him and gives an airtight case for his character, his strength, his wisdom, and his sovereignty. And in response to what he heard, not what he saw, Job said in Job 42 verse 5, 
Quote, I have heard of you by the hearing of, my, of the ear, but now my eye sees you. In other words, Job saw the glory of God through the words that God spoke to him, through the heightened understanding of God's character. And so in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. God will proclaim his covenant name, To proclaim his name is to proclaim the character qualities of himself. A proclamation that he is the eternally self-existent one. It proclaims the perfection of his character. The uprightness of how he deals with people. For God to proclaim his name is his signature. It affirms his trustworthiness. It functions as a visible manifestation of himself. Do we have a manifestation of the glory of God in the form of words? That's the very form he gave us. It is the word of God. In Exodus 34, when God will actually make the proclamation to Moses, he not only proclaims his name once, but he does it twice. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. This is the only time in all of the Bible we see this. This is why this is the preeminent description of God, of himself, given by himself. It is his great statement of his transcendence and his goodness. He continues in verse 19, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And this is so interesting. He's telling Moses what he's going to tell him. It's that important. It certainly reminds Israel of the sovereign mercy he's showing her right now. God basically is saying, I will be gracious and merciful if it pleases me, when it pleases me, and for the reasons that please me. Anybody who questions the sovereignty of God cannot get through Exodus 33 easily. Now, is that statement just an emotionless, distant assertion of God's own sovereignty? Is this just a a statement of theology? Not at all. Not at all. The, The point of God saying this is not just to assert his sovereignty, but to assert his compassion and his care. When he says that he will be gracious In Hebrew, this means a heartfelt response by someone who has something to give to another who has a need. That there's there's an emotion involved here. This isn't indifference. This isn't a distant attitude. He says, I will have mercy. This is a double comfort here. The the Hebrew form of this verb specifically is used for a, a deep inward emotion of compassion. An emotional feeling toward another. This isn't just, okay, I won't kill you. This is... I will have mercy on you because I love you. There's a heartfelt affection toward the one receiving the mercy. And so in verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. To see the essence of Yahweh is deadly. And I think this is often misconstrued that God is giving the big warning, but you're not going to see my face or else. And that is true, that to see the face of God is synonymous with the wrath of God. This is like during the Great Tribulation, Revelation 6, then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? When God says, you cannot see my face, it almost sounds like he's saying no. But there's more a sense of compassion. You're not able to see my face and live. So he's telling 
Moses that he'll keep him safe. And remember the context. God was about to destroy the nation and start over with Moses. And so God is saying, I will not show my face to you. I will not show my face to Israel because that would be fatal. That would be my wrath. Instead, I'll protect you from my wrath and I'll show you my goodness, my mercy, my kindness. And so God tells Moses how this encounter is going to happen in verse 21 of chapter 33. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft on the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Israel is about to go into Canaan and face enemies bigger and stronger than they are. Moses asked repeatedly, God, will you be with us? God says, let me show you how I will be with you. There is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. I will cover you with my hand, literally in Hebrew, the softest part of your hand. And you'll see my back, meaning you'll see my goodness. You will not see my face, meaning I will not show you my wrath. How merciful and kind God is to save. And now in a show of restoration and forgiveness, look what God says. Chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. In other words, we will reinstitute the covenant. All is well. And so, per God's instructions, Moses went back up on the mountain and as promised, God revealed His glory to him. And it is appropriate, particularly in this context, to be even more precise where the Lord is in all capitals. This is in Hebrew, the name of God, Yahweh, Verse 5, Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a Lord merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. Jewish tradition has often identified this amazing statement by Yahweh as the 13 attributes of God. This tradition identifies them by taking every possible component and identifying God's character. Some of them are fairly speculative, but I love the desire to find every detail about God possible. According to this tradition, the first proclamation of God's name, Yahweh, speaks of his covenant-keeping nature, which is unchanging. The second proclamation of God's name, Yahweh, speaks of his unchanging character as merciful. He's described as, as a God. Hebrew is El. It's related to Elohim, which is the same word used to speak of creation. And so a God emphasizes God as creator and being merciful to his creation. He is merciful. The Jewish tradition says this is compassion as one has toward a child in a womb. He's gracious. This speaks of favor toward the undeserving. He's slow to anger. This means God is not pouring out his wrath until he gives time for repentance. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's merciful to the righteous and even to the unrighteous for a time. 
His faithfulness, this is a Hebrew word for truth, that God is fair, he's equitable, he's just in all of his dealings. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. Because of his promise to Abraham, now thousands are benefiting. He forgives iniquity. Tradition calls this intentional sin. He forgives transgression. Tradition calls this rebellious sin. And he forgives sin. Tradition calls this inadvertent or accidental sin. The point is, there's no type of sin God won't forgive. And based on the statement that God will not clear, literally in Hebrew, cleanse the unrepentant, he does cleanse the repentant. Thirteen attributes of God from one little statement. But God's proclamation ends with a clear warning. God has forgiven the nation as a whole, keeping steadfast love for thousands. But he still knows who the unrepentant individuals are, and he will by no means clear the guilty. The repercussions for unrepentant sin are extremely severe. They can extend even into several generations. And after hearing the glory of God in this poetic proclamation, verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And based on the proclamation of God's merciful nature, Moses once again asks for mercy on behalf of Israel. He wants one more yes. 34 verse 9, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. In verses 10 through 28, God renews covenant with Israel. He gives a condensed version of the book of the covenant. And so if we were to put this all together, this is like a good parent. Listen to the sequence here. God gave his covenant in detailed terms. The people agree. The people break covenant. And so God spanks them severely. Moses intercedes to keep them from destruction. God forgives them. And then he says, essentially, now where were we again? And he reviews the covenant. and goes back through the rules. When Moses came down from the mountain, his face is shining as a reflection of having been in deep communion with God directly Chapter 34, verse 32. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Did you notice that Moses spoke to them with the glory of God reflected on his face? And when he was done telling them God's requirement and the reiteration of the covenant, then he put the veil on his face. And from then on, when Moses would meet with God in the tent of meeting, his face would shine. And he would put a veil on when he was out, and he would take it off when he was in the tent of meeting with the Lord. This didn't mean Moses was special. It means communion with God is special. Now, the reason for the veil isn't given, but there's really only one possibility. that Just the discomfort of looking at the brilliance of the reflected glory of God was enough. And as one scholar said in very academic terms, Having a leader whose face shone like a lamp was more than a little weird. I think that's reasonable. But the glory of God is reflected on the face of Moses as the mediator of the old covenant. The old covenant. It shows us just how amazing and tremendous God was to make this covenant with sinners, to provide a way to have fellowship with him. But we, as partakers of the new covenant, we are are even more blessed Because if the old covenant was great, then the new covenant is superior. 
Because Christ, our mediator, is superior. In fact, Paul uses this illustration of the shining face of Moses to make this exact point. And I want to finish our time tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with me, and we'll just spend a moment here. Paul is arguing against those who would say that Gentile Christians, in order to be fully in the faith, they had to become Jews first, had to come under the law of Moses first. And so Paul sets out to prove that the new covenant is better than the old. In the first several verses, he characterizes the old covenant. He calls it the ministry of death. That in violating this covenant, you brought death upon yourself, as we saw in the 3,000 that died, and the threat of God upon the rest of the nation. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Now, if you have a different translation than the English Standard Version, such as maybe the New American Standard, it might say at the end of verse 7 that the glory of God on the face of Moses was fading away. And generally what we hear is the idea that Moses wore a veil so that Israel wouldn't be discouraged because they saw the glory of God fading, so to speak. But there's two problems with that. First of all, the original Exodus passage never says that. Never says that at all. And second, with great care in translation, this final word in the New American Standard, fading in the English Standard Version, being brought to an end, is best defined as being made inoperative or being made null and void. In other words, the fading away or being made inoperative or becoming null and void is not speaking of the glory of God on the face of Moses. It's speaking of the ministry of death, the old covenant under Moses, which was fading away. The text here or in Exodus never says that the glory was fading off of Moses' face. What it is saying is to look at the contrast between the old covenant and the new. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. What is it that's being brought to an end? The law of Moses, the old covenant. Not the, the glory of God fading on Moses' face. That's the least of their concerns. The glory of the old covenant is so outdone by that of the new that what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. In fact, in verses 12 through 16, Paul asserts that Moses wore the veil so that Israel wouldn't see that this covenant was eventually going to fade away. And to this day, he says, the veil remains on Israel. And that only in turning to Christ can the veil be removed. Now remember that when Moses was with the people who had little understanding and had only the old covenant, his face was veiled. But when he was in the presence of God, his face was unveiled. And in Christ, in knowing the true and full mediator who is God, very God, we enter into the Holy of Holies. And look at verse 18, the end of the chapter. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
In other words, we're not standing far off at the head of our tents looking at someone else who can go into the Holy of Holies. We go in with unveiled face because of Christ. The new covenant is better. By the way, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God can be just as easily translated reflecting the glory of God being transformed into His image. Three gospel principles. Your sin is worthy of death. You needed a mediator. You needed a merciful God. But the mediator didn't just plead your case to God. He died for you so that God will never ever threaten to remove you from His blessing. Payment is made in full. It's paid forever. In the Old Covenant, God was constantly threatening Israel with their own demise. He never does that with us because payment has been made. Because of Christ, God's mercy is such that the veil over the face of Israel is not over yours. You're just becoming more and more and more like your mediator until you meet him. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for the forgiveness of Israel, which is a model for the forgiveness that you have extended to us. We thank you, Lord, for all the covenants of Scripture. We thank you for the glory of the old covenant, which is just a shadow of the the greater glory of the new. We thank you for our great mediator, Jesus Christ, who even now at this moment is keeping us safely in his hand by virtue of his work of intercession at your right hand, continually arguing our case, continually shutting down the accusations of Satan against us. That not one sin will be laid against another. Lord, we thank you for forgiveness, which is permanent, which has secured our salvation through Christ. Lord, we pray for a man or a woman hearing this message who has not experienced the forgiveness given in Christ. We pray that they would turn even now while there is still time, while God's mercy waits, while his patience continues. And we pray this in Christ's name.